here in chapter 1, we find the first of three parts that fills out this letter. In this first part, Peter is writing about what it means to be a Christian. And what we find is that it is marked seemingly by paradox, where we might prefer an either-or proposition, we find both and. The passage begins in verse number 3 with the power of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. And it continues with the gift of faith as the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. But then it shifts to what a Christian is supposed to do. If you look at verses 5, 6, and 7, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. After listing these seven virtues that a Christian is to make every effort to add to his or her faith, in verse number eight, Peter tells his readers, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you look at verse number 10, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. So it seems that Peter starts out with the power and promises of Jesus, and then that's where his focus is, and and then he shifts his entire focus, what it means to be a Christian, on the individual Christian. We prefer either or, but there are dangers, first of all, that it's not correct. But if we take the, the position that it all depends on us, there are at least two potential dangers. The first is pride that we think that we are Christians because of what we are doing or what we have done. But then there's also the potential for despair for those who have come to understand that they are not capable of doing what they need to do. They will despair of any hope of being a child of God. The answer is not to say, since what it means to be a Christian does not depend on me, then it must all be on Jesus Christ because we do read about his power, his great and precious promises, his calling, his election of his people. And some would conclude wrongly that what it means to be a Christian has little or nothing to do with me whatsoever. This either-or business is a temptation, I think, in many areas of faith as a Christian. We passed out a quote several Sundays ago uh, from the prologue to the book, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And uh, Ross Dalthat wrote, what defines this consensus above all, what distinguishes orthodoxy from heresy, the central river from the delta, is a commitment to mystery and paradox. Mysteries abide at the heart of every religious faith, but the Christian tradition is uniquely comfortable preaching dogmas that seem like riddles, offering answers that swiftly lead to further questions and confronting believers with the possibility that the truth about God passes all our understanding. This mystery, this paradox, I think, is seen supremely in the nature of God himself, triune, the three-in-one God, and in the incarnation, Jesus, who was fully divine and fully human. Dothat goes on to say, time and again in the early, church, in early centuries, Anno Domini, the councils of the church had the opportunity to resolve the dilemmas and shore up the fragile syntheses to streamline Christianity, rationalize it, minimize the paradoxes and the difficulties, make it a more consistent, or make it more consistent and less mysterious. 
And he gives several examples. I'll just mention one. They could have listened to the earnest British moralist Pelagius instead of to St. Augustine and replaced the mysteries of grace and original sin with the more commonsensical vision of God whose commandments can be obeyed through straightforward exertion. Then he goes on to say, in every instance and in many more as well, they, that is the church, chose the way of mystery. And I would argue that this, this also includes the matter of what it means to be a Christian. We must see the mystery and the paradox involved rather than seeking a clear-cut, binary, either-or, black-and-white situation. Because on the one hand, we see in verse number 3, we are told that Jesus not only sets the highest standards for us for life and godliness, a godly life, on the other hand, he also gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. I've mentioned this several Sundays already, but I would do so again. Some people tend to look at Jesus' remarkable teaching and miracles, and there they see the power of God and rightly so. But Peter sees Jesus' divine power at work in the seemingly unimpressive reality of men and women able to live lives that honor Jesus. Peter was there. He saw the miraculous. He saw the power of God at work, and yet he sees the power of God at work in the lives of ordinary people who seek to honor the Lord Jesus. In verse 4, we are told... Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So based on the great and precious promises, you may participate in the divine nature, you may escape the corruption of the world. Now this would seem to put it all on Jesus and allow us to sort of kick back and participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. But then again, we come to verse number 5 in which Peter, using the imperative, tells his readers, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And we could restate, because it is implied in every line, make every effort to add to your goodness knowledge. Make every effort to add to your knowledge self-control. Make every effort to add to your self-control perseverance. Make every effort to add to your perseverance godliness. Make every effort to add to your godliness brotherly kindness. Make every effort to add to your brotherly kindness, love. In a new translation that has just come out of the New Testament, uh, done by the British scholar N.T. Wright, for this he translates, you should strain every nerve to supplement. That is, everything in you, every nerve in you should strain to do this. Well, it's like, wait a minute. I thought Jesus had given us everything and he's given us great and precious promises so we can participate in the divine nature, and now you're telling me that I have to work like mad, I have to strain every nerve? It's the both and. It's not either or. It is a paradox. It is mysterious. I think a key that illustrates this is what we find in verse 5 and verse number 11. And in English, it is not so uh, obvious, but in Greek, it is. The verb is found in both places. Interestingly, in verse number five, it is an imperative, that is a command, that you are to add to your faith. You are to supplement your faith, and he lists the seven virtues. Well, if you go to verse number 11, it is now in the passive. You will receive a rich welcome. So I mentioned before that the word that is used here was something that in the past, uh, among the Greeks, 
a rich patron would sort of sponsor the choir, a chorus, and on special occasions, the choir would sing for the entire town. And that, that's actually the root word that is used here. Well, in verse number five, it is active. You are to do this. And in verse number 11, you will receive this. You are to supplement. You will be supplied. There are other aspects to this mystery and paradox, but we must move on. In our passage today, in verses 12 through 15, Peter focuses on the matter of remembering. And it doesn't sort of come out of blue. He hasn't sort of changed gear, you know, shifted gears or changed direction. Because if you look at verse number 9, he points to the consequences of failing to make every effort to the virtues he had listed. If you look at verse number 9. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. The three consequences that are listed here is nearsightedness, blindness, and amnesia. A person who does not make every effort, who does not strain every nerve, is blind to the present, is nearsighted to the future, and is mindless or has forgotten about the past. This implies rather strongly that what it means to be a Christian in part is to be someone who remembers. And this is what Peter tells us in verses 12 through 15. Follow along, if you would, as I read these verses. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. The NIV here conveniently puts it with three R's. In verse 12, Peter wants to remind them. In verse number 13, to refresh their memory. And then in verse 15, that they would remember. Another way to view these verses is the time frame. In verse number 13, Peter says, as long as I live. In verse 14, I will soon put my body aside. And then verse 15, after my departure. So now and then the time of his death and then after the time of his death. Let's look at what Peter has to say in these verses. First of all, verse 12. I will always remind you of these things. Peter is greatly concerned, reminding his readers of these things that they will remember. By the way, if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and I'll mention this several times today. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. The matter of reminding and remembering is not sort of a passing thought. It is crucial to Peter's ministry including the writing of these two letters. I suppose the place to begin in verse number 12 is to ask, what does he mean by these things? After all, these are the things that Peter always wants to remind them of. These things is found as a phrase or a term in verses 8, 9, and 10. And the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the King James Version are, are more helpful here because they are consistent. In the King James for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he is purged from his old sins. 
Wherefore, the rather, brother, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never, or you shall never fall. The ESV has these qualities. Um, there is a footnote saying that it is these things. These are the things that Peter's been writing about. He wants these people to be reminded of and to remember them. He wants to remind them even though they already know them. And if you think about it, you can only remind somebody of something they already know. If I don't know something and you tell me, you're not reminding me, you are telling me, you're informing me. You can only remind someone of something that they already know. The place of remembering is crucial to what it means to be a part of the people of God. We see it in the Old Covenant, the corporate memory within Israel. On the Sabbath, the Sabbath was given to them so they could rest. Well, there is that, but it is so that they would remember. From Deuteronomy 5, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. It isn't simply getting a day off. It is a day to remember. And then with the Passover meal, it was to be celebrated every year so that they would remember. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God because in the month of Abib he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. It is that they are to remember. And then we have here, just a few moments ago, done something to remind us. In the New Covenant, we have the Lord's Supper. This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. The cup, or this cup, is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Also, the work of the ministry, preaching, is to remind people. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And then in his last letter, Paul tells Timothy, keep reminding them of these things. But let's understand something about remembering or being reminded. It is not solely or even primarily an individual activity or action. It is to be communal and corporate. We'll see more about this in a minute. There are at least two conditions to being reminded. One I've already mentioned, and that is that you must know something. As he said, even though you know them, he is reminding them. But I think also one must be firmly established in the truth. Without these conditions, Peter is not reminding these people. He is instructing them. And if you do not remember the things that you know, the truth, 
then there are two, at least two dangers. The first is innovation. Let's do something new. We're tired of doing the old things. And this opens the door for heresy. So thus we are to be established in the truth. And by this, I believe Peter means Christian teaching, a system of beliefs. And we find this throughout the New Testament from Acts through the epistles. In Jude chapter 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to ur- write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. This is a system of teaching that has been given to God's people. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Peter knows that his readers are firmly established. But we will see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that one of the, the, the marks, if you wish, one of the things that false teachers do is they go after people who are unstable. In chapter 2, verse 14, they seduce the unstable. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, um, he speaks of those who distort the writings of Paul. They are unstable. Peter is writing to stable Christians, but they still need to be reminded. We should not assume, I know the truth, I am firmly establishing the truth, therefore I'm okay. No, you are precisely the kind of person that Peter wants to remind. One last thing before we leave verse 12. You'll notice that, in a sense, Peter seems to identify three phases of Christian growth, that they came to know, they came to be firmly established, and now Peter seeks to remind them. To need to be reminded is not a bad thing. I think that we see a failure of memory oftentimes as having moral implications. There are times that it does. But we need to be reminded, even though we know the truth. So we come to the second R, and that is refresh your memory in verses 13 and 14. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter knew that his death was imminent. We know that he wrote 1 Peter from Jerusalem, but we don't know where he wrote this second letter from. I think it is likely that Peter wrote it from Rome, and it was very shortly before the time of his martyrdom. Peter was remembering what Jesus had told him about his death. This is from John chapter 21. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. By itself, this statement would seem to imply that Peter's going to live a good, long life. And like it or not, he may reach a stage in his life where he is not capable of taking care of himself and others will. But then John tells us in the next verse, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter could see that what Jesus had told him was going to happen soon. I know that I will soon put it, that is, his body, aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And because he knows that the death is close, the time of his death is close, he wants to continue his work, I think, with a renewed vigor. 
And it seems right that he would want to refresh their memory as long as he had time, as long as he has breath. He wants to refresh their memory. I find it fascinating. I don't know that you would. But Peter has no new teaching for these people. They have the gospel. He has nothing new, in a sense, to tell them. What he wants to do is to remind them and to refresh their memory. I've already mentioned chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where he's written uh, letters to remind them. They know the truth. He wants to refresh their memory. And then verse 15. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. This is the third R, to remember. Remind, refresh, and remember. While Peter was still living, he would continue his work of reminding and refreshing their memory in person when possible, in letters when possible. But with the end of his life looming on the horizon, Peter wants to provide something that so that after he is gone, they will still remember. Now, the issue of what he was talking about, scholars have argued about, is he talking about the continuing effects of his ministry? Is he talking about this second letter? I, I do think it is this second letter. But I, let's, I, I fear that we might miss the point that Peter wants to make. He is part of the first generation of believers, followers of Jesus those who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He is now writing to a group of second and even third generation believers. Soon, they will be all that is left of the church. And after them will be succeeding generations. Peter wants to do what he has to do to ensure that these believers will always remember these things. As we saw at the beginning of the letter, he opens it by asserting that their faith is as precious as ours. If you wish, second generation faith is as precious, is as real, as much a gift from God as first generation faith. They are not second class citizens. And by the way, and as one writer put it, in essence, we are all second generation Christians. We're not, we weren't there when Jesus was here. But we are as much the people of God as were the apostles and those first disciples. Peter is determined that the people to whom he is writing, as well as to us, 19 centuries later, that we would remember these things. We've been given the same faith and the same list of virtues that we are to add, that we are to make every effort to add to our faith. If we do not, we will be blind to the present, nearsighted to the future, and we will forget about the past. Why all this energy about remembering? Why, what is it about Peter and this remembering business? Well, first of all, to be a child of God involves memory. We saw that in the Old Covenant. We see it in the New Covenant. But there's something else. As Jude put it, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We might conclude that Peter is concerned that the gospel continue to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. That he is concerned that the faith will continue until Jesus returns. 
And I, I would not disagree. But I think there's something else that we should consider. Remembering is a communal activity. It is not only or even primarily an individual action. In fact, what it means to be a Christian is not only or primarily an individual action or activity. We hear this in Hebrews. And let me read to you several passages from chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then in chapter 10, perhaps a more familiar passage, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Even though it has been 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years since Jesus founded his church, there is a sense in which every Christian since that first generation is second generation. You know, we do not have direct knowledge, direct experience that that first generation had. By the way, that's why Peter and the apostles took such great care to write it down so that they could pass it on to us. But as second-generation Christians, we do not need new ideas, interesting ideas. We already have the truth. What we need is to be reminded. What we need to do is to remember, to have our memories refreshed. And we are to do it as the people of God, not primarily as individuals. There is a place for that. But we are to remember together. We are to remind each other. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, in part, it means to be a part of the people of God. You know, we make jokes. I hear them more and more as I get older about senior moments in which we forget things. Um, I think Guy and I have come to the conclusion that between us, we almost have a complete memory. Each of us sort of remembers what the other one forgets. Um, and we can laugh about such things and, and, and smile about them. But there are certain things we are to remember. And I would argue that one person alone is not to do this. We are to do it together. We are to remind each other. You are to remind me. Not say, well, you're the pastor. You, you know it all. No, I don't. And I do forget. And I am to remind you. We are to remind each other. Because we are the people of God. And we are to remember the mystery and the paradox of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He has given us great and precious promises through which we are to be partakers of the divine nature and able to escape the corruption of this age. He has given us everything, including life and faith. But we are not to be passive. We are not to be passive recipients. We are to make every effort. We are to strain every nerve. And yet, having done so, we are told that at the end, Jesus will richly provide our entrance into the kingdom. 
we live in an age in which mystery is sort of frowned upon. The modern age, as we drift into post-modernity, one of the marks of the modern age is that there is no mystery. We can know everything. I, I actually lecture on this with, uh, in my classes, that it's interesting to me that in the 19th century, as the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, that's where we find the rise of the mystery novel. That suddenly we need something to sort of, you know, give you goosebumps on you, you know, the mystery. Because life itself is not mysterious enough because we know everything or people imagine that they do. And so now we need someone to make it mysterious for us. And that, and yet, you know, if you've read any mysteries, any mystery novels, they always tell you at the end who did it. So it's only mystery for a while. That has come into us, and I think when it comes to the matter of what it means to be a child of God, to be a part of the church, we don't want mystery. We want it in black and white, yes or no, either or, and yet what we find in Scripture is quite mysterious. Stop and think a minute. You have become a child of God. Is that not an amazing thing? Is that not a mysterious thing? Do we imagine that we can just write it down in some type of formula and say this is what it means to be a Christian? And do we imagine that we can do it by ourselves, that we don't need each other? No, we do. We need to remind each other, refresh each other's memory. We need to remember together. We do communion together so that we would remember together. In a very real sense, one cannot do communion alone. One must do communion with others. And in the process, we all are to remember. You know that history is my field. And one of the things that I really think is so sad is how people have forgotten what has happened in the past. It's tragic. Well, for us as Christians, it's fatal. It opens the door to false teaching. It allows people to come in to innovate, to do new things, to go contrary to Scripture. We have the truth. Let's remind each other of that. Let's pray together. Father, you have made us, you have saved us, and you have not left us alone. Not only have you given us the gift of your spirit, he who lives within us, you have given us each other, brothers and sisters, that we can remind each other, we can remember together, refresh each other's memory. And pass on to others what we have learned. It is amazing that the church has endured through the centuries. But it is your church, your people, not merely a collection of individuals, but a body, a people. And this is what you've always planned from Abraham all the way through to Jesus and now to the present. Your desire was to have a people. May we appreciate this. Come to see how important we are to one another. 
And then when it comes to the matter of being your children, may we humble ourselves and bow before the mystery and the wonder of it all. Living in an age that is marked by arrogance that thinks it knows everything, or nearly everything. As your children, sometimes we are guilty of the same sin. I thank you for what Peter wrote all those centuries ago to a second generation of believers that speaks to us today, a second generation of believers as well. May your spirit bring these things to our mind in the days to come. May we remind each other of what we have studied. Now I ask that your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.